You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. A quick note before we begin today's episode of The Big Story includes discussion of suicide as well as medically assisted death. Early next year, it is very likely that medical assistance in dying will become available to Canadians who have mental illness as their sole condition. Now, depending on whom you ask, this is a logical step that the Supreme Court of Canada already allowed years ago, or evidence that Canada really is the euthanasia capital of the world. And I understand that. It makes sense. Death is never easy or simple, so why would we expect our views on choosing our own to be? Last week, many Canadians learned that because mental illness can include substance use disorders, drug users would theoretically be able to request made to end their addictions. The key word there is request, naturally. All discussion of that aspect was calm and reasoned. Listen, I'm not here to tell you whether or not someone in the throes of addiction should be able to end their own life, nor am I here to tell you what defines incurable or irreversible or mental capacity or any other terms we use during the long and complex process of applying for medical assistance in dying. What I am here to do today, along with our guest, is explain how that process works exactly. Who does define those terms? Where the guardrails are? And if the system is ready for the massive changes it will see in less than six months. And, I guess, if we are ready to accept those changes as a country. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Jocelyn Downey is a professor emeritus at the Faculties of Law and Medicine at Dalhousie University. She works at the intersection of healthcare ethics, law, and policy. Hi, Jocelyn. Hello. Thanks for finding time for us. No, it's my pleasure. I'm going to ask a very simple question to start, but I actually have no idea if it has a simple answer. And that is, what is the actual definition of who qualifies for medical assistance in dying right now? Is there any way to sum that up? Sure. I'll give you my simplest possible answer. You must have a grievous and irremediable medical condition that's causing enduring and intolerable suffering that can't be relieved by means acceptable to you. That's the simple one, but you might immediately say, well, what's a grievous and irremediable medical condition? So let me just flesh that out. You have to have a serious and incurable illness, disease, or disability. You must be in an advanced state of irreversible decline and capability, and you must be experiencing enduring and intolerable suffering that cannot be relieved by means acceptable to you. So you have to be grievously and irremediably ill. That's the bottom line that people need to take away with irreversible suffering. How has what we consider to be defined as that been shifting or changing since MAID became legal in 2016? Has that definition, I know the definition has stayed stable in terms of the actual words, but in terms of what we consider it to mean. What's happened is we had the decision from the Supreme Court of Canada in 2016, and the decision known as Carter, that established the parameters for eligibility. And then what happened was the government passed legislation 
that shrank those parameters. They added in the criterion that your natural death had to be reasonably foreseeable. Hmm. And then that was challenged in court successfully. So it went back out to being the parameters of Carter. Then the government responded to that decision by shrinking it again to have the mental illness exclusion that we currently have. And the, the plan is that as of next March, that exclusion will lift and we'll be back to where we were with the Supreme Court of Canada in Carter. So think of it as a circle that has shrunk, expanded back out, shrunk again, and is about to expand back out, <laughs> but never expanding beyond the parameters of the Carter decision. I don't know if this is fair comment or not, but Canada has been called over the past year or two, and especially since we began talking about the mental illness part of this, uh, the euthanasia capital of the world by critics of the policy, but also just media in other countries reporting on us. How did we acquire that label and is it deserved in, in the bigger picture? So we acquired it because it has rhetorical power. Hmm. So opponents to the Canadian system use it in order to make the Canadian system seem scary and something that nobody else should emulate and something that should be changed in Canada. Is it fair? I guess what I'd say is, you know, the numbers, they're only a bad thing if the thing is bad. Right. But if you're not opposed to MAID and you think if we have the MAID numbers reflect the people who meet the eligibility criteria, then having higher numbers than others have is not a bad thing. Right. And I would say there's nothing to be ashamed of. In fact, there's something to be proud of because who is getting access is the very people who the Supreme Court of Canada and others have said are the people that we think from a moral and legal perspective should have access to me. I want to ask about the mental illness uh, exception to this. And one aspect of the mental illness exception got some attention maybe, and that is uh, as it comes to drug use. Can you explain what's going on with that before we get into it? Sure. Maybe I'll just say something about something that happened maybe a little bit longer ago, not much matter of days, because I think they get confused in people's minds. So there was a private member's bill in the federal parliament, in the House of Commons, that was trying to make the exclusion of mental disorder as a sole underlying condition permanent. Right now, it's just temporary until March. They were trying to make it permanent. And that bill failed to progress on the second reading. So it is, it's dead. Then came out some reports about substance abuse use and whether people would be eligible for MAID if they have addictions. And that became a point of conversation. So no change in the law with respect to that. It's just another story that came out that got people worked up and worried because they don't really understand how MAID works. And I understand why people are concerned because they're they're not getting an accurate picture of what's going on. So that's just the latest in the kinds of scenarios that I would say opponents of MAID for mental disorders and for persons with disabilities and so on are bringing out in their efforts to see access to MAID rolled back in Canada. What are the challenges in general, maybe, around including uh, mental disorders as a sole medical condition for MAID, given, um, given what we know, but maybe more importantly, what we don't yet understand about them? Well, I don't think there's anything we don't understand that makes MAID for mental disorders as a sole underlying condition problematic. I think people need to know that you can already get access to MAID 
if you have a mental disorder, you just have to also have a physical disorder. So the challenges that people are identifying are actually already being dealt with by clinicians. So some people they would say, oh, we can't uh, tell whether somebody has capacity. Well, they absolutely can tell whether somebody has capacity and they're having to make those capacity assessments already for anybody who has both. The other thing is people are exceptionalizing mental disorders, uh, but there's nothing unique to mental disorders that would justify the exclusion. So clinicians are used to assessing capacity. They are used to assessing whether there's no more that can be done for someone with a mental disorder. So it's in a new context. It's in the context of made where there's a mental disorder as a sole underlying condition, but it's not even novel in respect of made. I guess where I'm confused, and you know, I'm not a doctor, um, I know you're not either, so we don't have to get into like specifics of medicine, but when we talk about someone having an irreversible condition, when we're speaking about mental disorders that we perhaps don't fully understand, how can we be sure it's 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 different, is it not? And again, I, I, tell me I'm wrong from inoperable tumors or something like that. Well, it's not different from all physical disorders. That's the key. You know, you could suggest it's different from a certain kind of inoperable tumor, but there are a lot of physical disorders that have the same kinds of uncertainties associated with them as do mental disorders. And so clinicians are already dealing with those kinds of uncertainties. So the, the things anybody raises that they're concerned about in the context of mental disorders as a sole underlying condition also apply to some physical disorders. They're overlapping is maybe the way of thinking about it. And there are challenging cases. Nobody's denying that. Those are in what we call track two, which is a track of procedural safeguards that apply to these kinds of cases. You will have track two cases for physical disorders and for mental disorders. They're just more complicated. We need to dig in. You need to find that all of the eligibility criteria have been met, that all the procedural safeguards, we have additional procedural safeguards in those kinds of circumstances, Okay, that those are all followed. You know, you started with the question, in a sense, you started your question with a reference to can mental disorders be said to be irremediable or incurable? And I, I think they absolutely can be. And there are circumstances already where a person with a mental disorder will try try everything for 40 years at a certain point they already get to a point where their clinician says to them, their psychiatrist is like, there's nothing more I have to offer. We can't figure out how to make this better. That is what incurable means. And that is certainly a state that some people with psychiatric illnesses come to, as well as uh, physical illnesses. What about substance use disorders specifically? Listen, that's something that we as a society really tend to believe can be cured or at least reversed or at least stopped. Could someone access MAID for substance use disorders? Do they fall under um, mental disorders? Well, it technically falls under the category of mental disorder, but will they be eligible? That's the question. Can people with substance use disorders meet the eligibility criteria? Because remember where we started, you have to have a grievous and irremediable medical condition. So you have to have a serious and incurable condition. So the first thing you're going to look at is, has this person undergone treatment? If you haven't done any treatment for your disorder, the clinician is not going to be able to say that you are incurable. The other thing is that with the substance use, you also have to have be in an advanced state of irreversible decline in capability. And this is where it's interesting because 
in the context of the substance abuse, you are either going to have the physical consequences and damage of long-term abuse, so for instance, liver failure, in which case you don't have mental disorder as your sole underlying condition, right? You have a physical problem. So you're not getting made because of your substance use, you're getting made because of your liver failure. If you don't have those kinds of consequences, then you're probably not going to be in an advanced state of irreversible decline capability. So you're not going to be eligible. Another feature is, you know, you have questions about capacity because patients in this kind of circumstance, it may be that they are intoxicated or they're in a state of withdrawal. You would never be eligible for MAID in those circumstances because you don't have capacity, which is a fundamental requirement for accessing MAID. The final thing I'd say about substance use is clinicians are already dealing with this, of course, because substance use disorder is very common in society. And people who are on what's called track one, we're not talking about substance use disorder is their sole underlying condition or mental disorder is their sole underlying condition. We're already dealing with those. So all the complexity of someone presenting with substance abuse disorder or addictions are already being handled by clinicians. So the notion of don't have the sunset clause lift, which is what is the policy question in front of us right now, doesn't make any sense because you already have the complexity of substance use disorders in front of clinicians in the context of MAID. Doesn't mean it's not complicated and people have to be extremely careful, but I think clinicians are extremely careful. They will look at the eligibility criteria. It will be rare that someone with a substance use disorder alone would ever qualify for me. So I think this is a issue that kind of blew up because suddenly people are like, oh, I didn't know you could get it for that. That sounds terrible. And not understanding the context of the rigorous eligibility criteria and procedural safeguards that will protect people who we don't think should have access to MAID. Uh, you mentioned that unless something else happens, these changes will come into effect or restrictions will be lifted in March. That's less than six months from now. Do you think uh, we fully understand yet how uh, it will play out and are we ready for it? So I don't think we ever fully understand anything um, in the context of clinical care. So that's that, I think that's the wrong standard to hold anything to. Are we ready? That's a fair question. And I think absolutely we are ready. This has been going on for many years and people have had time since the legislation. So we've already had two plus years because you may just think, oh, this is just going to happen in March. All of a sudden, this is going to be available. Whoa, we're not ready. Well, people have to understand that we have new regulations that are collecting all kinds of data. We have an accredited national curriculum for MAID, which is extraordinary. We didn't have that for MAID in the beginning. We have that now. People are taking it. There are modules on MAID for mental disorders. We have model practice standard developed um, with advice to the profession, which is something that the regulatory bodies, the colleges of physicians and the colleges of nurses who regulate the practice of MAID, they have that. We've had workshops held. I was at one in June. It was psychiatrists and MAID assessors and providers together, some from every single jurisdiction in this country, learning together, talking, getting prepared. So we're sort of more prepared and more ready for MAID for mental disorders as a sole underlying condition than we've been for any other aspect of MAID. And I would say for any other kind of clinical intervention that has come along. And the thing I would flag for people is really important. 
is if a clinician is uncertain whether somebody meets the eligibility criteria, under the law, they cannot find that person eligible. So that is a protection that's built right into the way the law is written. So if, if you can't be sure that the person's condition is incurable, you cannot find them eligible. I think so much of what you're explaining uh, has to do with how badly maybe most people who consider made casually understand the actual process on the ground. You've kind of explained it uh, a little bit here and there throughout this conversation, but maybe you could really quickly walk me through what would happen for somebody, whether it's uh, for substance use or for uh, a mental disorder who wants to seek MAID? Like, where are the guardrails in the process? What do they do? Right. So they would approach either a clinician, if they have a clinician who is open to having that conversation, or they could call the MAID program because there are navigation systems for people who don't have access to a clinician who is comfortable talking about MAID. You'd have an initial screen. So for instance, if you were 16 and you called the MAID program in Nova Scotia, you would go no further because the person taking the call would say, you have to be an adult. You are just ineligible for MAID. You don't go any further with respect to MAID. They will, however, try and put you in touch with other supports and services. But let's say you're getting to have an assessment. You have to have two independent physicians or nurse practitioners evaluate whether you meet all of the eligibility criteria. And those are the ones I laid out at the beginning. And then I'm assuming we're this track two concept for which is where mental disorder is a sole underlying or a substance use without a physical condition. That goes on to this track that means you have to be informed of all of the alternatives, different ways that your suffering might be relieved. You have to know, be informed about all the support, alternative supports and services that might be available to you and then put into contact with the people who could provide those supports and services. You have to, in the minds of two clinicians, have given serious consideration to all of those alternatives. If the two clinicians don't have expertise in the condition that's causing your suffering, they in turn have to consult with somebody who does have that expertise. That person comes back with, with their view on things, and that's shared between the two clinicians, the two assessors. You must wait 90 days from the, from the start till the provision can be made. That is a minimum. It's not a maximum. And one thing that you would find with made for mental disorders is that the 90 days is going to be much longer because the clinicians involved are trying to figure out what all have you tried? What else could be tried? Is there any other way to alleviate your suffering other than made? Made is not a first resort. And that is something that people have been misled to believe. And so you would go through this robust assessment by two independent people. Do you have a time frame, a minimum time frame? You have this discussion of all the alternatives. And then and only then are you able to contemplate proceeding with MAID. It is one thing to disagree about the ethics of MAID. And it's another to mislead people about the actual reality of it on the ground. I have to say I've been disappointed in in the media over the course of the past few years because of the lack of a critical lens on what they're being told. Let me ask you about a couple of those stories, and I won't get into, you don't have to rebut them or anything like that. But 
they are uh, on face value, you know, the sort of thing you can understand people being concerned about. And here I'm referring to like the anecdotal um, stories. And I have no reason to believe any of these reporters or people are lying, but of of people being uh, offered maid perhaps because they can't get a bed at a facility or some people electing maid in some cases because they can't get into accessible housing and they see that as life not worth living without those kind of supports. They're really emotional stories, so I see why people accept them and react to them. Yeah, and if they were true and complete, I would also be concerned. But part of the problem, think about it this way. A number of these cases, they are from family. There is no way the clinicians can speak because of the patient confidentiality. The patient can't speak because the patient is dead. So you're only getting a part of the picture. When you say the housing example, there's one where that has been used and People are really disturbed. And if that was, if it was true, that would be disturbing. But the clinician was actually given permission to tell what had happened and read from a letter from the patient, gave testimony in front of the Senate. And it shows that what has been represented in the media is just not true. It's incomplete, mm-hmm. but that doesn't get covered. So the, the problem is you're only getting a part of the story. And I guess the, what I would suggest is like, if the, abuse or the non-compliance with the law was happening, then we should have cases where the police have laid charges or the colleges of physicians and surgeons have disciplined clinicians, but we don't. So either what's going on is people aren't reporting to the colleges, the police, or they are reporting and the police and the colleges investigate and they find that there wasn't non-compliance. That what was going on is people, for instance, didn't understand what the eligibility criteria were. So, you know, I think we have a very robust system for regulating healthcare professionals in this country. And the fact that we don't have any cases of noncompliance with the federal legislation, I think should give people comfort. Thank you for explaining that. And I know people are emotional when they think about it because everybody imagines a loved one in this position and, and nobody wants to think about that happening. I totally understand. Why, if you read these stories, you think Canada's a disaster area with respect to MAID. The other thing I just would add is, you know, there is a motivation right now that we're seeing for Canada to look bad and to be made to look bad because there are other jurisdictions that are thinking about decriminalizing assisted dying. So they look to Canada and Canada, then people go over and testify that Canada, look at all these cases these kinds of cases that you just don't think should happen or slippery slope arguments and that kind of thing. So there is an interest outside Canada for Canada to look bad. And I genuinely think that that is actually feeding some of this tension. The last thing I want to ask you, assuming nothing stops the changes from happening in March, what will you be watching closely for uh, in the weeks and months following that? Well, I would say there are going to be tiny numbers of people who are actually eligible for MAID under this change. So, you know, we'll watch to see that it does turn out that they're tiny numbers, and I have no reason to believe that it won't. What I'm going to be looking for then is, do we finally see a turning of the attention from basically trying to re-litigate, re-argue the court cases we've already had that gave us MAID to saying, put those fights to bed. We have made, we have made under these circumstances. Now let's turn our attention 
to trying to improve disability supports and services, to improve palliative care, to improve mental health services, to improve housing, all of the things we should be doing quite independent of MAID, let's turn our attention and our energy to all of that. That's going to benefit many, many more people. And it's not a response to abuse, but it's this, it's this recognition that, of course, we want to improve these supports and services for, for everybody who needs them. So I'm hoping that all of this energy, parliamentary energy, uh, as well as advocacy, can come away from what I think is quite futile debating, up, you know, trying to roll back made to, to constructive discussions about how do we make life better for all of these people who, who may well be ineligible for made, but they're still going to be suffering. So let's find ways of getting supports and services for them. Jocelyn, thank you so much for this. I understand this a little better now, I think. Well, thanks for covering it. Jocelyn Downey of the Faculties of Law and Medicine at Dalhousie University. That was the big story. If you need to talk to somebody about suicide or medical assistance in dying or anything else, you can call Talk Suicide Canada at 1-833-456-4566. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. There's someone there. You can find The Big Story at thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can find us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn. You can email us. That address is hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca. And you can call us and leave a voicemail, 416-935-5935. You'll find this podcast everywhere you get your favorite podcasts, and we're glad, hopefully, to be among them. If you like us, don't forget, rate, review, and please tell a friend or a family member. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.